Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome. I am Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass. Thank you, as always, for joining me today. Now, I want to take you back to before I was married, when I was in that dating phase of life. And when I was dating, I operated under this very romantic assumption that God had set aside for me a perfect soulmate. To this one specific person who would not only be perfect for me, but they would also be God's perfect will for my life. The chef's kiss, if you will. As a result of this attitude and this way of thinking, I was super picky when it came to dating. There were a lot of deal breakers or unforgivable sins that if a girl committed, I was out. Like, for example, one time I was playing piano for a girl who was singing a song at church. She was singing the special, the offertory. And, and she was having a tough time figuring out when to come in while we were practicing. She just couldn't get it. We tried it a couple times and she just was really struggling. And when I was just like, I was trying to be encouraging, I was like, hey, let's just keep trying until you get it. Let's just try it one more time. When I said that, she snapped at me and she said, you're just not playing it right. And if you played it right, I would get it. In that moment, it was like a switch turned off in my head. I was done. She treated me like that. She was not the one. Another time, a girl dropped me off at home one night and went in for an unexpected goodnight kiss. And I didn't know who told her how to do this, but she stuck her tongue so far down my throat that it was like she was looking for the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop. It was the weirdest thing ever. And based on that experience, I decided that she must not be God's perfect will for me. And I was done. I was out. Because I expected a perfect soulmate, there were a million of these little unforgivable sins that I wouldn't tolerate when I was dating, sins that if committed, there was just no coming back from. Now, having deal breakers like that in dating probably worked out well for everyone because I ended up with my wife, Terry, who's amazing, and no one else ended up with me, so they win as well. It was definitely wins all around. But it touches on something that we're coming across today as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and it raises this question. Are there deal breakers in our relationship with God? Is there an unforgivable sin, one that we could commit that is so bad that God just simply can't get over it and he's done? Is there something so awful that God is like, man, that's it, I'm out? And if there is, what would it be? What is the unforgivable sin? And, and what does it say about God that there's something that he can't forgive? Well, let's see how Jesus addresses this very issue in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 22. It says this, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. He healed the man so that he could both speak and see. So everything we're going to talk about today begins with an event. Jesus has brought a man who the people believed was both blind and mute because he was possessed by a demon. And Jesus, doing what he did, he healed him. So it continues after the event. Verse 23, the crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, well, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Okay, so in the story, we have the initiating event. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. That initiates the entire sequence of events that's going to happen. After the event, 
we have the reaction of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the elite religious leaders and experts on the Jewish scripture, Jewish scripture, excuse me. And their reaction is pretty surprising. They were convinced that the only way Jesus could heal someone who was under demonic control was by working with those demonic powers himself. I mean, look at how the Pharisees described Jesus in the same account and from the Gospel of Mark. They were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Now, if you've been with us as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, you know this. You know that the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders, they said that Jesus was demon-possessed a lot because they actually thought that he was. They really believed that Jesus healed a blind man who couldn't speak with the power of demons instead of with the power of God. And do you know why? The reason they believed this was because Jesus did not fit their religious template. They were the religious experts. No one knew the scriptures better than they did. No one worked harder to live a pure and holy life than they did. No one had the interpretive knowledge of scripture that they had. And Jesus simply did not fit their religious mold. He interpreted scripture differently. He seemed to pick and choose which religious rules to follow or not. He engaged in behaviors that they had always considered to be sinful. They were so certain that they understood exactly who God was, what God wanted, what he was like, and how people were supposed to live, that it simply wasn't possible to them that Jesus was operating under God's power. And it was regardless of whether he healed people or not. Because Jesus' expression and interpretation of religion, it didn't line up with theirs. Any supernatural activity must be demonic because it couldn't be God. Well, look at how Jesus responds to that in verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you've just said. Now, I love this because Jesus, he doesn't like quote scripture or anything. He just logically picks apart the Pharisees by pointing out how stupid their argument is. I mean, why would Satan advance his cause by tearing down the things that advance his cause? That just doesn't make sense. And then Jesus is like, it's an especially stupid argument when you consider the fact that you guys have exorcists who do the exact same thing that I did. Are your guys demons possessed too? The problem here was that the Pharisees were so committed to their religious position that they were willing to twist themselves into knots to defend that religious position, even when it was obvious that God was doing something totally different. And then Jesus, I mean, he gets even more direct in verse 28. He says, but if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, some, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So what is Jesus saying here? 
He's saying to the Pharisees, he's, he's asking them this question. He's saying, why are you overcomplicating all of this? The simplest conclusion is the correct one. If I'm kicking out demonic forces, it doesn't mean I'm demon-possessed. It more likely means that I'm advancing the kingdom of God. And if I can push back Satan, it doesn't mean I'm working with him. Because anyone who's with me is, is for me, and anyone who's working against me is against me. It just means this. It just means that I'm stronger than Satan. The only thing threatened by Jesus more than the demons was the religion of the Pharisees. And here they were trying to defend that religion against the evidence of what God was doing right in front of their eyes. But they were so committed to their own religious tradition and their own religious interpretation that they refused to see what God was doing. Which brings us to the final thing that Jesus said in verse 31. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. And here it is. The sin that, according to Jesus, will never be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. But what does that mean? I mean, if I tell an inappropriate joke, I'm done for? Or, or that if someone who isn't a Christian denounces the Holy Spirit, even though they don't believe in him now, and even if they ask forgiveness for it later, they can't have that forgiveness? And why can we speak against Jesus, the Son of Man, and be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit? Well, all of this starts by understanding what the Holy Spirit does. And so according to Jesus, we can look in the Gospel of John, verse 15, verse 26. Jesus said this, But I will send you the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. He will come to you from the Father, and he will testify all about me. See, the Holy Spirit, his role, he testifies to us about Jesus. There is a sense that our ability to respond to Jesus is actually dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives testifying about him. Jesus says this in, in John 16. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So in the same way that someone would give testimony in a trial that, that then convinces a jury of someone's guilt or innocence, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of our need for Jesus. It, it's like the hot light at Krispy Kreme. You know, the Holy Spirit announces that there's something special about Jesus and that it's happening right now and you ought to come in and get some. It's an invitation whispered in our ear to experience the life that God created us for. The Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus so they can be forgiven. And when we reject the work of the Holy Spirit, we are willfully cutting off our path to that forgiveness. See, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it isn't unforgivable because God won't forgive it. 
but because we will never seek forgiveness when we reach that point. It's a heart that is so hard, that's determined to reject God by any means necessary, just like the Pharisees did when they said Jesus was demonic, just so that they could reject him. They'd already made a decision about Jesus that would never change because of how his religious practice differed from theirs. And it's not that Jesus would never accept them because they'd committed blasphemy, but that they would never accept Jesus as a result of their blasphemy. Which brings us to the point in the message where we ask this question, what does this mean for me? What do I do with all of this? How does this affect me? And I want to share three takeaways from all of this. And, and the first takeaway is that being religious doesn't make you immune from missing the Holy Spirit. When Jesus brought up the unforgivable sin, it was in the context of what the Pharisees were doing. And they were willfully and purposefully rejecting Jesus. In spite of his teaching, in spite of his miracles, in spite of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I find it interesting that when Jesus brings up the unforgivable sin, it's in relation to the people who were most religious and had the most access to God's revelation. Jesus didn't accuse pagans or atheists of rejecting the Holy Spirit. He accused the very people who God had chosen to reveal himself to. Being religious doesn't mean that you won't or aren't missing out on what God is doing, just like the Pharisees who missed out on what God was doing through Jesus. So that's our first takeaway. Second takeaway is that it's possible to reject what God is doing in defense of religion. The very moment you feel the most certainty about your religious viewpoint and, and you feel the need to defend it against perceived attacks, you may be rejecting something that God is doing. A defensive posture is not the welcoming posture of Jesus. And when we find ourselves holding up our fists to defend ourselves from the world or, or to defend ourselves against people who express our religion differently than we do, we are not extending the welcoming open hands of Jesus. An attitude of defensiveness is never his way. So when we find our expression of religion fighting against or pushing away other people, we may actually be pushing away the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees rejected the work of the Holy Spirit because they valued their way of religion more than the religion God was revealing to them through Jesus. And then our final takeaway is this. It's that a posture of humility is key to not rejecting the Holy Spirit. You see, pride and certainty, they create religion that is brittle and harsh and unyielding. But a spirit of humility results in religion that is, that is gentle, loving, and able to follow the movement of the Holy Spirit. I mean, let's go back to the beginning of our story for a second to look at the reaction of part of the crowd to Jesus' healing of the blind and mute man. I mean, let's look again at Matthew chapter 12, verse 23 and 24. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? We saw that the Pharisees, they just outright rejected Jesus because his expression of religion didn't align with theirs. But the first group of people who are generically identified as the crowd, they were amazed and they were curious. 
What does this mean? Is this God at work among us? Is it possible that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior sent by God that we've been waiting for? You see, their response to what Jesus did was to ask questions and to wonder about him. I think it's interesting to note that no one in this story outright accepted Jesus. I mean, the crowd didn't just declare that Jesus was God or proclaim that he was the Messiah. But even though the crowd may not have fully believed, they had a posture of humility. They had an open mind to Jesus and his teaching. They said this, they said, maybe God is doing something here that we don't totally understand. And even though we we may not be ready to totally roll with it, maybe we should pay attention. God forbid that we could miss the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives because it doesn't line up with our narrow and brittle expression of religion. That we could look at God's healing happening in ways that we don't expect and happening in people who we don't expect. And that we could look at it and say, well, that must be the work of the enemy because the Holy Spirit would never be at work in the life of someone who is divorced or in a same-sex relationship or who is deconstructing their faith or who doesn't regularly attend church or who doesn't vote a certain way or who doesn't believe in six-day creation or who doesn't read the Bible exactly the way that I do. That must be the work of the enemy. Rather, may we be people of open-minded humility who live with hearts of love and grace towards others, knowing this, that we just might be the Pharisees in the story without even realizing it. Now, as I close, maybe you are someone who has always been afraid that you might have committed the unforgivable sin, and you're worried that you won't know until it's too late. Let me just tell you this. If you're worried about it, you're good. The unforgivable sin is not something that we do as much as it is something that we will never do. It's a condition of the heart in which a person will never seek forgiveness because of a consistent, willful, and purposeful rejection of the Holy Spirit. God can forgive even the greatest insult to himself. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who killed him while he hung on the cross. But God never forces himself on anyone. Restoration and forgiveness are for those who are willing to accept it and seek it, no matter what you've done. And maybe for you, your perspective of how Christian religion has been practiced for the last few years has caused you to write Jesus off. You've looked at the religion of Christianity and you've decided that it's not just, at least how you've seen it expressed. Well, today, can I encourage you to have a heart that just like the crowd around Jesus says this, could this Jesus really be the Messiah? I'm not sure about all this. I see things that I have have doubts about but I'm willing to keep an open mind and I'm willing to keep asking questions. And if the Holy Spirit is real and wants to do something in me, I'm willing to let him guide me to the truth of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in my life. If you are turned off by the religion of Christianity as you've seen it expressed in our nation and in our world, I would encourage you to not be like the Pharisees 
and just turn it off and embrace a different religion of your own, I would encourage you to do this. Have the heart and the humble attitude of the crowds that says, I don't know about all of this. I have my doubts and I have my questions. But what about Jesus? I would encourage you, keep your heart of wonder. Keep a heart open to God. Keep a heart open to the Holy Spirit and allow him to speak into you, to guide you, and to lead you to the best life that you could ever live in Jesus. Thank you so much for joining me, and I will see you next week as we continue with our Just Religion message series. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. 